Welcome. My name is Julian Schlossberg, and the name of our show is Movie Talk. And each week, we'll be talking to some of the men and women who work in motion pictures, theater, and television. This week, my guest is the Academy Award-winning actor of Amadeus, F. Murray Abraham. Hi, Murray, and welcome. Thank you very much. I feel very privileged to be uh, your first guest. Yes, it's true. I feel very privileged to have you. Now, let's go back in time to a young boy with asthma. How did asthma change your life? We were uh, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I was born in Pittsburgh, and my brother and I both suffered from it, and we were told we had to move to a desert area, and it turned out to be El Paso. There's a large uh, Syrian contingency there, and we went to El Paso when I was about four years old. You also started reading a lot because you were home a lot. Isn't that true? Yeah, I was a sickly child. It's really hard to anyone who's been sick for a while, as soon as they, they find that they're healthy, for, for whatever reason, they really appreciate the health very much. I was sickly. I had rheumatic fever, and I was out of school for a year. And it was at that time that I learned about reading. We didn't have television then, and radio was important to me. But my family was strictly blue-collar, hardworking people who, I'm sorry to say, didn't have much time for reading. But I did, fortunately. And although the other thing that I'm interested in, in El Paso, you kind of, I remember I went to school, I wonder if you had this in school, Murr, where they had the angel on one wing, on one shoulder, and the <laughs> devil on the other. Did you have that in your little school? Yeah, yeah. What a good memory that is. Yes, I, I remember it now. Yeah. yeah and, and, and that's what I think of you, altar boy, juvenile delinquent. Let's talk about both. How do you know all these things? My God. Oh, I did my, I had to do my research, but also I've been following you since my bar mitzvah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. In, in El Paso at that time, there were something, gangs called pachucos. They're kind of the forerunners of the really dangerous gangs now, the Bloods and the Crips. But then there were not many guns around. It was knives and other things. But you could usually walk away from a fight, maybe, you know, hurt a little bit. But the point is you could walk away. We had our own gang, nothing really violent, just stupid. Doing those things, I suppose, teenagers do different things now than we did then. There wasn't that much in the way of drugs. There was alcohol. We were stupid. But we would steal cars. It was much easier to steal cars in those days. Hot wiring a car was very simple. Now it's all very electronic. And that may sound strange to you, but it was very common. I'll tell you something interesting about El Paso, Texas. It was wonderful to be part of two cultures. I grew up speaking Spanish. But people left their doors open. You've heard this before, too. But also, they used to leave their keys in their cars. And there was so much thievery that if your car was stolen because you left the keys and you were responsible <laughs> for it, it was actionable. Anyhow, we just drove around. We didn't do anything terrible. We might have trashed a few cars. But as I'm saying, it was just something that you did. You were part of it. It was reckless. It was exciting. You were a part of a gang. You had your own name. And uh, you felt a little safer with people around you. Did you have a name? We called ourselves the Rogues. 
<laughs> well, as far as I know, you've lived up to that name. <laughs> Tell me about how did the F of, because you were born Murray Abraham. How yeah. did this F come to pass? I have to tell you, uh, my father is from Syria. His name is Farid. The F is there because of him. And aside from that, I thought that Murray Abraham doesn't sound like very much. F. Murray Abraham does. It's true. You know, when you think about it, there aren't that many people that start out with an initial. So it's made you different right off the bat. Yeah, I thought so at the time. At one time, uh, in a previous generation or two, it was common for actors to have first initials. F. Lee Bailey? No. Yes, yes, that's right. F. Lee Bailey. But even though he, he was an actor in the courtroom as a lawyer... (laughs) Tell me, tell me a little bit about the idea of your voice, your incredible voice was not the voice you were born with. Tell us about how it became this incredible voice. Well, thank you for the compliment. The same to you. It was very simple. I was really getting into a lot of trouble. I had decided that I wanted to finish school as soon as possible and get out of El Paso. I took speech and drama. A teacher that took interest in me, Lucha P. Hutchins, changed my life. I didn't expect this to happen. She introduced me to the theater. She introduced me to Shakespeare. And once I started to read and to really take it seriously, don't ask me where it came from. It's to her credit that she saw something that I didn't know I had. And I realized after I started to listen to myself that I had to do something with my voice if I really wanted to do Shakespeare. So I began to listen to Olivier. I still have those records, by the way, and Gilgood. And I used to listen to them and then mimic them. And my father had a recording machine, and I would listen to what I sounded like. Was it always your goal to get out of El Paso? In El Paso, that whole Mexican culture, you felt very safe in Los Angeles. It felt like a mirror. And besides, L.A. was where you wanted to go. L.A. was the place. And it was a car culture like it was in Texas as well. And I couldn't wait to get out and see what the ocean was like. So I I thumped my way to L.A. and, uh, you know, found a life there. I got my first job was a play by Ray Bradbury, who was a great man, by the way. And he kept friendships for years. I was one of them, one of many, a generous, wonderful man. But in the run of that play, The Wonderful Ice Cream Suit, which was a long run in L.A., nine months we ran. Whoa. Uh, Yeah, it was my first real personal relationship with a bunch of actors in in a tight situation. And I listened to what they had to say about acting. I didn't like their idea of acting. I thought, I want something higher. I want something else. Their idea was... An L.A. actor does not have the same idea of the theater as I did. And I like so many movie actors. I mean, there are great ones, but it wasn't enough for me. And I wasn't seeing any kind of respect for the theater that I thought it deserved. So as soon as the show closed, I went to New York and studied with Uta Hagen. Well, we should talk. I think Ray Bradbury wrote The Martian Chronicles and Fahrenheit 451. Is that right? That's the same. Yeah, he was a great science fiction writer. And the fact that you stayed in touch is interesting. So, okay, on to New York. 
and Uta Hagen. Now, Uta Hagen is a tough cookie. I knew her. I met her, spent time with her. And yeah. I know that she took a real liking to you. And yet, at one point, you walk out. Tell us about that. Yeah. Well, you really do your research, don't you? I became a favorite of hers in as much as that I became a monitor for the class. That means I got to turn the lights off and on. When the <laughs> you know, that was yeah. a gift to her favorites. But uh, my work was pretty exciting at first. But the longer I studied with her, the worse I got. And I realized after a, a year of studying with her that I was no good. I wasn't trusting myself. What I had been trying to do is adopt everything that she was teaching and push away or disregard what I brought to the theater. I was no longer trusting my instinct, is what I'm trying to say. I was trying simply to please Uta Hagen. And that's a real problem with most great teachers. They have a great charisma and a student can fall under their spell, and some of them stay with that teacher and never go anywhere else. You can't make a life by being a student. You're not an actor unless you're getting paid, as far as I'm concerned. Tell me a little bit about walking out, though. Oh, well, it was very simple. The last thing I did for her was from Henry V, and she stopped me at one point, and she said, she never stopped anybody. She said, that's enough. Let's stop. He has a wonderful talent, and he pisses all over it. Whoa. So I walked out. I left. I was brokenhearted. But after I stayed away, I began to, to rediscover myself. And I realized that she did it deliberately to get rid of me. She knew what had happened. Huh. That's interesting. Well, you stayed in touch, though, didn't you, a bit? Yeah. Yeah, she was very good to me. Uh, she was very supportive. I wrote some time later that I was going to be doing Cyrano, and I reread her books because they were so helpful. And I, she sent me a note saying she really appreciated it. And when she died, it turns out that she kept that note that I wrote her. Oh, she did appreciate it. They sent me a copy. Yeah. It was great because it meant so much to me. Oh, yes. So, okay, you're now in New York. You're studying with Uta Hagen. I imagine you're doing some theater, but you've not been in front of a camera, but you start with commercials. What did commercials do for you? Anything at all? Oh, yeah. It was very different then. Uh, in those days, uh, I think maybe 90% of the commercials in this country were, were made here in New York. And you could do six or seven or eight, maybe 10 auditions a day. Wow. You found yourself running from one place to another. And that was a, a kind of a training for the camera, by the way. That was where my camera training came from. I became pretty proficient at it. After a while, I was making a living finally, but I also was getting slick, and I, I, I was worried about that because I still was doing theater when I could, which was not paying nearly what commercials paid. I made a lot of money, but uh, I mean, in those terms, a lot of money. But the point is, I decided at one point that I had to stop doing commercials because I, was, I knew what was happening. It was the same kind of a thing in other terms that I experienced with Miss Hagen. That's what I was just going to say. Yeah. I never called her Uda, by the way. I couldn't do that. Anyway, <laughs> Miss Hagen. But it was the same kind of thing. And I thought, that's the next step. I've got to do this. And, 
and I stepped away from it. And it was pretty tough for a while, but it was worth it. It's important to do that. You have to be aware that you're shaping yourself. You're not letting yourself be shaped. A very important thing, yes, I'd say. And as you say, actors often fall under the Strasbourg, uh, et cetera, and that's not necessarily the best thing. Let's talk, though, in terms of, I want to just announce to everyone listening that this man paid his dues. If you want to look at credits, if you want to see a guy who starts out in little roles in major movies and then all of a sudden explodes. But let's go to the little roles at the beginning. Let's talk about George C. Scott in They Might Be Giants oh. or or Al Pacino in Scarface. Let's talk about what that must have meant to you. You're working with two major stars. You've got small yeah. roles. Did you observe? What did you find working with them or watching them? The important thing that I observed with both of them is that each one was absolutely professional. All those stories about George Scott, he was not a bad boy at all on that film. And it was tough filming. It was really so cold, the cameras froze at one point. I never complained, not one time. And he was always delivering. I was very happy to see that. It also told me that you can't believe all the stories you hear. But with Al, it was another thing because we used to hang out at the same cheap bars in the old days. We didn't know each other. We just we used to you know, drink at the same place. But when he became famous, he was very generous with every actor. And in, for example, Serpico, I had a, a very small scene with him. And he was so encouraging to each of the other actors. He would say, how do you feel about that? And we're talking about people who have one or two lines or sometimes none. Do you, do you want to try it again? Would you like to do a little Im improvisation? I don't know if there are many actors who do that kind of thing. I'm a big fan of Els. And I remember, I think I'm right, aren't you in the front seat driving and he's in the back and he wants you, you want him to go in or he wants you to go in? To, and you're not going to go, I think, right? That's it. We want him to go up and, and do the, the bust and he's dressed for it. And we say, you go ahead and you get them to open the door and we'll be there, your backup. And what happens is he gets stuck in the doorway because they, they suspect him and he can't move. And he's at the mercy of these drug dealers and we don't go to help him. Whoa. And there's a moment in there where, you, where Lumet showed us thinking about what should we do. It was a wonderful moment. It's funny to be talking about myself that way, but there aren't really, I have to share with you, there aren't many moments in my films that I really, I like to think about, that I enjoy looking at. And there's one moment there in that little thing that I like very much. I'm proud of that. But it's the same of Amadeus. There's a lot in that that I can't bear looking at. I Why? Really Why? I all I see is the mistakes. All I see is the things I could have done, should have done. The timing could have been better, or the, the gesture or something. But there's some stuff that's pretty good. I would say good enough for you to win the Academy and the movie to win the Academy and Milos to win the Academy. I didn't want to get there so fast, but we're there at Amadeus. And I know what I find fascinating. Let's talk about how the hell did a guy get the role that every actor wanted. 
How did that happen? Well, it's a story. Uh, it's been a while. I got to a point where I was refusing work and I was getting nice offers, but I didn't want to be a supporting player anymore. I wanted something more. Again, it was a departure. And that's another leap that's very difficult, as, as you know, as, as, a, as a producer, as the head of a studio, how difficult that is to convince the money people to give that schmuck who nobody <laughs> knows, you know, a job that every ethic in the world. Anyway, the point is, I got a call. Milos was calling in groups of actors to, let's make this as clear as possible. In those days, and it may still be happening, there were group auditions and they would ask you to improvise. And from the improvisation, they would then select who they wanted to take to the next phase. And then they would audition for certain roles. And when this happened for Amadeus, I said, I don't want to be seen for a supporting role for one more British actor. <laughs> uh, American actors are at least as good as every British actor, and Americans uh, are not getting a fair shake. And I don't want to see him for this. I don't want to be a mass, a bunch of people. I want, to, I want the role of Salieri. And my agent said, what? I said, no, I mean it. So Milos called again. I don't know why he was asking for me. Maybe he was just asking for a bunch of people, and I was one of them. He asked three times for me to come back and be part of that improv organization group. Not three times, two times. The third time, I got a call. I said, I'm not going to do it. And they said, no, he wants to see you for the part. And I must tell you, I don't know where that came from, except that he wasn't seeing, in all the people who wanted to do that part, he wasn't seeing what he wanted, what he was hoping to find. Because as you said, that part was the part. I mean, it was the part of the, almost of the generation each actor, the one in England and the one here in the United States, were both Brits, and they both had won the top honors when they did it in the theater. I think even when it played in Russia, the guy in Russia yeah, won the top right. honors. He did. He did. You're right. In other words, it's the role. Yeah. <laughs> you know. We should point out that Paul Schofield and Ian McKellen were two yes. of the actors who played it, and yeah. clearly you would think one of those would get the role. Well, of course, that's, of course you would think so. So when he got the call, when he said, all right, uh, uh, he interviewed me, and the interview was terrible. He and Saul Zanz were in a brownstone apartment in a thrown-together office, which was busy and noisy, and I was there to be interviewed. And every time it was my turn to talk, Minas would answer the phone. And I, <laughs> after a few minutes, not much time, I kept looking at Saul, saying, what's going on? And so I said, you know, yeah, well, so after, I don't know, less than five minutes, it was the end of the interview. And I was, I was so mad. I, 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 I stormed. I didn't storm out. I left knowing it was a waste of time. He wasn't interested in me. And I went to see a friend and I bought a six pack of beer and we were, I was like, I'm so pissed off. <laughs> and then day I got a call saying that he wants to put me on tape. Mm. It was tape in those days. And I said, really? <laughs> and he said, yeah, he wants you to come to his place. He'll give you the script that he wants you to work on, the piece of it. You'll go to his apartment. We'll work with you before you do the taping. 
It was at the Hampshire House on Central Park South. And it turns out that the woman, the actress who was there, I had worked with in a Chekhov play. So I knew her. I felt very comfortable. Kathy Dowling. And it was a, a nice scene. We did the scene together. She's a beautiful woman. I could see why Milos wanted her to be there. Yeah. yeah. Afterwards, we had a drink together and blah, blah, blah. And then at the taping itself, it was a studio up around 57th Street. The elevator was broken. So in order to get to where the, to the studio, you had to go through a furniture store <laughs> to, to, to the freight elevator to go up to this place. And the doors opened into this room full of actors and people running around, auditioning here and auditioning. And I thought, this is a joke. So I told him who I was, and she said, okay, go sit over there. I said, no, no, this, this is for the starring role. Put me someplace a little more private. I mean, why not, right? Ask for it. I got to tell you, I'm listening to this story. You really had a lot of guts to stand up the way. I mean, after all, we got to let people know, at this point, you're playing little roles. I mean, it's not like, you know, this is... But I guess you just felt enough is enough. And I felt like I had nothing to lose. <laughs> I'm not going to get this, you know. I mean, I really. And, of course, I worked on it. But the point is, when they called me, the actress who was working with me off camera, I had also worked with on a play, a John Ware play. Was that Kathy Dowling? She was in The, the Seagull. And this other young woman, Alexa, was in uh, Landscape of the Body, John Guare. And so I felt comfortable again. So we did the little audition, and she was dismissed. And he said to me, all right, Murray, now do the old man. And I said, I, I didn't work on it. He said, that's all right, do it. And I did it. I have to tell you, it's not really hard to do good material. And that's really good material. <laughs> the action that I used that just came to me as I was working on it was the one that we finally ended up with months and months and months later when we were shooting the film. It was the same thing. Huh. So it was inspired for a second. So when it was over, when he said cut, and I wanted to go and, and, and thank him for the audition, he was gone. <laughs> he, he ran off. So I thought, of course I don't have that. That's, that's a pretty good sign. So finished, so I, you know, I thanked the engineer, and I went back, and I thought, that's it. And I'm painting my kitchen cabinets in my place in Brooklyn, my apartment in Brooklyn. And I got a call. I said, uh, he wants you. Wow. I must say, it's an extraordinary story, a yeah. great imitation of Miloš. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I want to ask you, since we talk about Miloš, you as an actor go into a show, you go, whether it's film, theater, you go in with a definite knowledge how you want to play it. What do you want from a director? What, what do you expect from a director? I expect a director to know at least as much as I do about my character and about the project itself. I expect him or her to have an idea of what they want to accomplish with this piece of work to have that so clear in their mind that they allow a lot of 
experimentation within that framework. They allow me to try different things because they're not going to lose track of where they want it to end up. And you always know when an actor does not know what they're doing because they have one idea in mind. And if you don't fit yourself into that, you're going to begin to simply repeat what it is they're asking you to do rather than create something. With Milos Foreman or with any good director, and I've, I've worked with some, not a lot, but some, who really trust themselves that much that they'll let you go and let you go and then select, but also to have what it takes to communicate with you on your level. That was one of the great gifts of Kazan, Elia Kazan was that he spoke to each actor differently in ways that the actor completely understood. That's the only way you can account for all of the extraordinary performances that he got out of so many actors who otherwise were not very good yes. or were mundane. But in his films, they were wonderful. The point is, with Milos, he, was, uh, he, was, he had a nose for the truth. And he would say at one point, sometimes when I was trying, so he says, no, Mori, that's bullshit. <laughs> and, and, and there aren't many people who can say that and get away with it ex until you understand you he knows and you trust him yes if he says so then it must be bullshit yeah. i don't have to watch myself i don't have to direct myself that's the problem with a bad director you begin to direct yourself and watch yourself and that's not a creative way of thinking. Well, no, it's not freeing you to do what you can do. You, you're worried about the fact that he doesn't know. Yeah. yeah. Or she. Yeah. yeah. Or tell, she. Me, tell me, Mar, you've worked in all mediums, in film, in theater, in television. Do you have a preference of any of the three? Or oh, it's, always, it's always the theater. It is. It is. But I love film, too. But I have to do both. I have to balance it. I'm very comfortable on the stage. Not the idea of uh, the, the stories about Zero Mostel, and you—you've told a few that I mean, he gets away with—he literally got away almost with murder. He'd yeah. walk off the stage and sit in people's laps. Yes, <laughs> I mean, you know, you can do that, but you can't do that in, in movies. <laughs> well, you no, know, you can't do it in movies, and 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 keep the job, and keep the job. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We've established all the president's men, Scarface and uh, all the, the uh, George C. Scott, they might be giants. You get Amadeus, you win the Academy Award. What happens? Does it go to your head? Does it. Wait, let me interrupt you. Uh, the uh, thing about Scarface is that. I meant Serpico. But it was uh, Scarface also. That was also Pacino. But Zance was a very tough negotiator. Of course, you know that. Really being a hard negotiator for so long that I had already, in the process, auditioned for Scarface before I auditioned for Milos. And, and Brian De Palma uh, and Al and I did an improvisation. Anyway, he offered me the job while they were negotiating for Amadeus. I asked Brian, can you please hold off? He says, I got to know pretty soon, Murray, you know, because I got to, you know, I got to make this movie. I got to have a schedule. I said, but he said, what's it for? I said, it's for Amadeus. He says, okay, I'll wait for Amadeus. But I need an answer. Well, it was long. I said, fine, okay. I, I need to pay the rent. Of course, I'll, I'll do Scarface with pleasure. Brian De Palma? So I took the job, which was going to be shot, you know, later on. 
And after that, I got Amadeus. So what they had to do was shoot around both pictures. And I was doing both at the same time. I was doing Scarface in L.A. and uh, Florida and doing Amadeus in Prague. And it was very romantic, flying back and forth and prepare. It wasn't as hard as it sounds, I must tell you. I think you should keep it as hot as it sounds. <laughs> if you like audiobooks, then you will simply love the latest from Julian Schlossberg entitled Try Not to Hold It Against Me. In his memoir read by the author, Schlossberg tells of negotiating with Al Pacino, Burt Reynolds, and Lillian Hellman, hosting the syndicated radio show Movie Talk, interviewing stars like Jack Nicholson, George Burns, Betty Davis, and Bob Hope. Experiencing the paranormal with Shirley MacLaine and Betty Hill. Restoring Orson Welles' masterly film Othello. Partying with Barbra Streisand and Liza Minnelli. Testifying in a lawsuit against the Beatles, whom he loved. And interviewing over 140 major figures for his series, Witnesses to the 20th Century. With a forward by Academy Award winner Elaine May, Try Not to Hold It Against Me gives listeners the behind-the-scenes look at the rarely seen but crucial work of a producer. Schlossberg recounts the trials and triumphs of work and play as a theater, film and TV producer, and radio host. It's a -a one-of-a-kind autobiography read by one of entertainment's true insiders. Try Not to Hold It Against Me is available on Audible or wherever you get your audiobooks. But I want to ask you this. With Amadeus, you win the Academy Award. You're now the best actor of the year. It's a, you're a worldwide name. How did it change your life, and how did you handle it? Oh, yeah, well, I didn't handle it. I, uh, I decided that uh, I wasn't going to do anything except starring roles from then on. Oh. And only really good stuff. I thought, I thought they were going to be all Amadeus after that. <laughs> That's a mistake. <laughs> That's kind of stupid. <laughs> no, well, but you were... You were... I, I, had, I was offered some, some wonderful stuff, I have to tell you, with some very good directors, famous directors. But I said, no, I want the starring part. How dare you? That's the other part that was very damaging. How dare you? That's what the Academy Award did to me. It made me feel really like I knew everything. You know what I mean? That's dangerous. Who wants to be around someone like that? Yeah, it's I, was still working. I was doing work, you know, I was getting jobs in the theater. I was doing off-Broadway for $90, $100 a week. I was working, but there's a time clock on the fame of an Oscar. And that's what friends of mine, Al, one of them, kept reminding me of. He said, it's good for about five years, Murray. You've already gone a year without a major film. Better be careful. Yeah. I insisted. He's right. And, but it wasn't just him. There were other people. And I said, no, this is not. I'm going to do just classy work only. And they're on my terms, you know. Well, you can't go on that long before people just don't think you're alive anymore. Yes. Yeah. And, of course, the reputation then gets damaged. Well, exactly. They say, why isn't he working? Is he an asshole? I'm not an asshole. I, I'm a nice man. But I did want something more. Yes. But I well, great opportunities. On the other hand, 
when a man can do as much Shakespeare as you've done, as much as Chekhov. I mean, remember, you've always done the Cyrano. I mean, what a incredible role. I mean, so you were able to overcome that part of it, at least. But but movies, we both know movies are a tough, tough game. They're much tougher than the other two. They just are. So at that point, uh, I I made a link, a connection with an agent in Italy, Vittorio Squilante, and now with his son. And I started doing these giant, epic movies in Italy, you know, with, with the biggest stars in the world. They, you know, they sign their name, they do they do a week's work, and they get paid a whole bunch of money. You know, that kind of a film. I think as long as you win the Academy Award for Best yeah. Actor, Italy will hire you. <laughs> well, it's what you said to me when I won. You said, for the rest of your life, it's going to be Academy Award winner. That's right. That's right. Now, let's talk in terms of more modern day, because God knows you've done incredible stuff on television. But let's start with Homeland. I wanted to ask, as a viewer, as a viewer, I was on the edge of my seat. Was there any kind of tension on the set to help you guys or not? I tell you, everybody was such, I can't tell you enough positive about that set, about those people. Such pros, really was. But but Claire particularly, that woman. We should say Claire Danes. You know that intensity that you see in the performance? That's what she brought to the rehearsal. She didn't fool around. She was, anyhow, a big, big respect for her. And uh, Saul, you know, we, we would go back. I can't say enough good about it. One of the things is that it was worldwide. It was yeah. sensational. People, I live in the village and uh, here, uh, Lower Fifth Avenue, a lot of tourists down around here. And I would be going about my business and people would say my character name with these strange accents. Oh, Dorador! <laughs> it was extraordinary. But also, I got to shoot that great material, that extraordinary material, in exotic places. South Africa was terrific. Berlin was a big discovery. Uh, it was It was heaven. Well, you know, one could say around the world in 80 days with F. Murray, because we can talk about other places where you visited. Let's talk Let's talk about one of your favorite movies I know, The Grand Budapest Hotel, oh. written and directed by Wes Anderson. That must have been, it seemed, again as a viewer, like everybody was enjoying themselves on that one. He is one of the best ever, ever, ever. Wait till you meet him. The next time he comes to town, I'll make a, I'll make, we'll have a lunch. I'd love he's, it. I'd love it. Guy. But we we lived in one hotel. It was a border of, of uh, it was in Germany. Oh, gosh. Anyhow, the, the eastern border. Sounds like Poland to me. It was Poland. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And okay. um, we all lived in one, one hotel. Everyone, cast, crew. And we all ate at communal tables. Crew, cast, everyone together. And some of the most famous actors in the world would come out for a two days' work for that guy. They spend more time traveling than they do acting. (laughs) He wouldn't do anything for him. It was a wonderful experience. And he insisted on keeping the same people in all of his films. He did a picture in Paris. I think he lives there. Maybe London or Paris. Anyhow, the point is, 
he called me. I was busy doing something. He said, Murray, I want you to come and do a day's work so I can put you in the picture. Huh. He's going to fly me to Europe and back and for a day. I said, I can't. But that's the kind of man he is. Yes. Well, I want to ask you this. What do you do when you're not acting? You're such a consummate pro. <laughs> you're su I remember Herb Gardner, who was a huge fan of yours, the writer, once said, what would Murray have done if he wasn't an actor? <laughs> would he have said, the tuna fish is in aisle three? I don't think so. So tell me, what, what is your downtime like? I'd like it to be writing, because you know I love your writing, but what else? Herb, Herb Gardner was a wonderful man. I did a play of his, you know, goodbye people. Yes. Let me tell you this story uh, briefly. Uh, no story is brief with me. No question is brief with me. <laughs> <laughs> there was a 10-question column in the Daily News years ago, and they would ask 10 questions of a working actor or a person in the show business. And my wife happened to be at the interview. My wife, God rest her soul. The last question was, what would you do if you knew that tomorrow was the end of the world? Mm. And my wife instantly said, he'd look for work. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what you do. And But now I don't look for work as much. Uh, I don't have to. But what I do is work. I really, I, I, I still study the sonnets. I know 50 of Shakespeare's sonnets now by heart. I'm going to know at least 100 before I'm finished. It's not that big a deal. It keeps me exercised. But I sing every morning. I vocalize and I work out. That takes up a bit of the morning. And yeah. then I think about writing that book that you say I should always write. I do, I do. <laughs> okay, so here's what I want to know. A man like yourself does these incredible plays, and sometimes they're not so incredible, but you're doing them eight times a week. How do you do it? How, how can you, if you'll forgive the expression, get it up eight times a week? It's the best. I think that's one of the great losses that we have what with television and comics, because there was a time when the stuff you saw on television had been polished on stage for years before they brought it to television. But now it's such a mass, instant mass media, your material is old before you have a chance to really hone it. It depends on the material if you're doing a show eight times a week. If you're doing Shakespeare, you can do that without any problem because it continually changes. I know, I've done it. But if you're doing a crappy play, it's a chore if it's three times a week. Yes. But getting it up, for me, it's easy because I really do bring the day with me when I go to work. That's part of the change. But also, I absolutely believe that each audience is essentially different, and they bring a different energy every time there's a new audience. It's a new energy. And I recognize that, and I try to communicate with that. I try to receive it. I mean, without it's instinctive. It's nothing I practice. I just simply believe in it. And I think they deserve the original, the first performance, as well as anyone on the opening night deserves it. Some people repeat. I, I can't imagine that. The word for rehearsal in French is 
repetition, repeat. The other thing is that in New York, I live not far from the public theater. And when I, I've done a lot of work there. And when I was doing King Lear, which was a wonderful performance, but not everybody thought so. And <laughs> uh, as, as you know, if your phone doesn't ring the day of the reviews, you know it's a bad notice, mm, yeah. right? Well, I'm clear, it didn't ring. So I'm walking to work. Got to go to work the next day anyway. Yes. And on the way, a stranger comes and says, did you read what so-and-so said about you? I said, no, I haven't read. I won't read the reviews for a couple of weeks. He says, boy, he really doesn't like you. I thought, well, oh, 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 God. great. So, yeah, your performance changes daily, thanks to the New Yorkers. <laughs> yeah, I would say. Well, a whole new group of people discovered F. Murray Abraham with White Lotus. Yeah. Oh, my golly. And like Wes Anderson, Mike White is the writer-director. Are they similar to you? Are they people that you like working with? Similar in many, in, in many ways. First of all, they are both writers-directors. They both make all the decisions, not all decisions, but they do the, all the artistic decisions. They keep the same family around them of crews as much as they can, but also his understanding and his love for actors. Wes loves actors, and so does Mike. There's so much happiness on this set. I suppose that comes through, doesn't it? It does. It Oh, my golly, it does. And how about playing this kind of uh, a lovable lecture? Can you believe it? <laughs> Can you, yeah. you can't tell you how many young women stop me on the street and smile and say, oh, you you do a wonderful, wonderful. He's a great woman is big, the first rate. They love them. They do little heart signs when they see me. Yeah. I mean, even now. Wow. <laughs> what? Okay. Thank you. Yes. And for, and for White Lotus, you were nominated for a Golden Globe. You were nominated for a Primetime Emmy. I mean, this has really been, in a way, uh, another resurgence. Oh, absolutely. And the interesting thing about that is so uh, interesting. An interesting aspect of it is that I had a great role and uh, making a lot of money on Mythic Quest. I was warned when I first joined that organization, which was a uh, Another terrific group of people, by the way. That's, that was really, I hated to leave that show. But I was warned early on not to tell certain jokes. Not racist, not, 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 not sexist, but a little off color maybe. And I love jokes. So I was warned about it. Anyway, I was on for several seasons and it was a great character. One of the best I've ever done. And uh, at one point they said, no, you, we have to let you go because you told a joke with a bunch of people and someone was offended. I could tell you the joke now and you would, you would say, that's not filthy. That's funny. But anyhow, the point is someone did. And I was fired. Essentially, that's what it amounts to. I was fired. If I hadn't been fired from that show, I never would have done White Lotus. Ha. Ha. So, so hmm. what there, there you go. The uh, what's that great religion aspect? When, the, when God closes the door, He opens the window. So <laughs> maybe that's the case. Now let's talk about coming up the coming attractions of F. Murray. What about Queen of Versailles? Tell us about that. Listen, it's based on the documentary Queen of Versailles, 
And if you don't know it, you should take a look at it because it's an extraordinary story. And uh, Stephen Schwartz has been working on it for a couple of years with uh, Kristen Chenoweth. And I was involved, I was invited to be her husband uh, in the musical adaptation of this remarkable family of people. We did a workshop. They're working on it now. It'll, it'll be three years since they started working on it. And I did a workshop here in town. Uh, I sing a bit. We're talking with real first-rate singing people. And I was very intimidated. But anyway, presenting a big musical now is so expensive. At the, from, the, from the onset, is expensive. They had to rent a studio big enough for a cast of 21 people with sets. And we're talking about a workshop production. With yeah. a, with a little, there's a, there are several musical people there. Hmm. And, and all the backup, I mean, it took 50 people to put that together. I mean, what can that cost for a, a studio lot of money? 48th and Broadway for a, for a month and a half? If I just didn't point out that Stephen Schwartz is the man who did Wicked, so I don't think we have to do a telethon for him or the money. Yeah. Anyhow, yeah. yeah. It's still running, 20, 21, 22 years. Yep, and doing over a million every week like it was a cash register. And that's not counting the road shows. That doesn't count the road shows or Europe or Asia. And they're, <laughs> you know, and they're making a movie. That's that's right. And they held it off. They was David Stone was smart enough to hold it off, the producer. Wait. I, he says, I had a lot of money out there before the movie comes out. But just one quick thing. There was a time when you and I were young, and a movie would come out of a play. You had to close the play. You don't yeah. now. I give you Chicago, still right. running, you know. Right. So, I mean, uh, it, it's a totally different world. Anyhow, let's get back to the Queen of Versailles and you and Kristen Chenoweth. It's, I keep talking making nice with so many people, you know, and we should let our audience know, I don't say these things off the top of my head. That's right. I, I sure know. say nothing. That's all. She is straight from heaven. I ain't uh, kidding you. And aside from, you know, that, the pipes, but she's fabulous. She's a fabulous, wonderful woman. I can't say enough about her. Very lucky. Yeah. In my, you know, if this thing does go, and I don't see any reason why I shouldn't, but things happen. But if it goes, I'll probably be the oldest person on Broadway. Oh, yeah. Well, you're going to certainly certainly be the oldest person this summer in Boston. <laughs> <laughs> so we should say you're going to be playing Boston, right? I have a wonderful song that, that Stephen's written for me. I mean, it's a lovely love song. And I do a little soft shoe. I can't Oh, wait. my. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to I want to ask you. I want to tell you actually. In in my, my what's left of my mind, what I remember in Amadeus was when you became the old man, the yeah. one that Milos didn't let you even study. It just had to do it yeah. right off the top. I swear to God, you could play Ben Franklin. I thought I saw Benjamin <laughs> Franklin. Well, be damn. Yeah. So when you get a chance. See what you think, and then we'll discuss doing the Ben Franklin story. <laughs> I see what tell, you mean, yeah. Tell me. He was quite a guy. He was quite a character. Yeah. Oh, he's a fascinating man. 
I want to I want to ask you. I know it's hard because this is an incredible career. Like fifty six, well, sixty years of you've been doing this. Tell me if there, if one said, what was the highlight of your professional career so far? Would you be able to pick out one or two things? It's hard. I have to say Amadeus is so important to me. But I mean, it, it, it's of course important. But uh, I loved the old man in Amadeus. I loved his humor. I loved yes. his perspective. And I also loved that his fight was not with, with Amadeus. His fight was with God. I thought, yes. oh, that's God. That's balls. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he took on the big boy, you know? Yeah, big... That's right. You can't get any bigger. That's no. it. But there's so... something else. There's another small thing. It was a character. I loved him. Uh, a character, if you'll remember, if you'll try to remember in the opening scene, when you first meet him in the insane asylum, what is he doing when you meet him? After all the crap he's been through, he's composing. Composing. He refuses to give up. It's yeah. what you do. It's the work. He still thinks maybe, maybe now. I, I loved him for that. Yeah, I do too. And I think that when you know, people talk about an artist, an artist doesn't necessarily become successful. An yeah. artist can still be an artist. The Cyrano was a favorite. I loved Cyrano. Oh yeah. I, I mean, I really, I did the Burgess translation, so it was in verse, and it's it's much more romantic than the the most the hooker. But the <laughs> uh, I've done a Greek that I I really loved. I love the Greeks, but uh, I loved my King Lear. Oh, by the way, <laughs> my very favorite, of course, is uh, Shylock. He was a big. Oh, yeah. Be and I, I yeah. love, but that reminds me quickly. Interjection: When the Times review came out for my Lear, the uh, headline was "Abraham kills the king." <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and then years later, but there were some critics who said it was the greatest Lear of our generation. By the way, wow, wow, they were very small newspapers. But anyway, <laughs> hey, and, and, and and one that you owned. <laughs> my mom. <laughs> Years later, when I did Shylock, that same critic who said that about my Lear said that my Shylock was the best that he'd oh. ever seen in his life. Oh. So I thought one of us has become better. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Well, we should say that's the Merchant of Venice that you're speaking of, and uh, and and of course, it's a great, great play. I want it. This is a totally on a totally different subject. You did not one but two movies with a major name named Sean Connery, a man yeah. who who was, to my estimation, the greatest James Bond there ever was, ever Absolutely. will be. They could keep making them. He, to me, is the personification. Absolutely. But he, but he has a very mixed reputation, and I wondered how you did in both Name of the Rose and. Uh, Finding Forrester. Yeah. I have only good things to say about him. He's an absolute pro, completely prepared every time, didn't put up with any crap from anyone about not being on time. His presence was impressive to everyone on the set because he was the leader. I mean, Jean-Jacques Arnaud was a, a leader too. But you look at someone who's the star like that, a powerful presence, and he was right there. We got along very well. Later, when I did Finding Forrester, it was the same thing. It was yeah. uh, 
It was, it was, I made him laugh a couple of times. He, uh, rest his soul. He was quite wealthy. And, uh, there was a, the joke that the man didn't, he didn't have any pockets in his pants. Right. Have you ever heard that expression? Yes, because he was a Scotsman. He was tight. <laughs> he was, yes. But, uh, uh I got to tell you, people like that. And Sophia Loren, with whom I worked, you walk into a room with them and you, uh, you vanish. <laughs> well, you know, Connery was totally overlooked as a fine actor, in my opinion, in many ways. You know, I saw him in a picture that was not successful called Marnie, where yeah. the Hitchcock movie. He was, was terrific. Yeah. And then there was a movie I bet you almost no listener has heard of called The Offense. It's directed by Sidney Lumet. It stars Sean Connery. It co-stars Trevor Howard. And it's about a young child molester. And Connery is the molester. Really? What ball, what courage he had to do that. He totally did. All of them did. And, of course, nobody came. I mean, when I say nobody came, nobody came. But but what a movie. But, you know. It's uh, it's too much. It was too much uh, for the time. It would be worse now, probably. Well, I don't know what to say, F. Murray Abraham. I, I think we've done it. I think we've done it. But I cannot begin to thank you enough and to tell you how much your friendship means to me and yeah. how much I have to be grateful to Mike Nichols, who yeah. introduced us. Yeah, it was a real, real lucky thing that day when I showed up at that restaurant. That's quite by chance, me and my wife. And he said, why don't you come and join us? And that's when we met. We did. We did. And it was uh, one hell of a night. Oh, I know what I forgot. The very first time I saw you on the stage uh, with, with, I mean, I don't want to sound like we're going to a boys club, but all you were wearing was a towel. That's all you were wearing. Let's talk about that play. I should mention that that was also one of the, one of my very favorite performances, Chris in the in the Rich, and oh, I should mention yeah. Terrence McNally. He really, I did more of his plays than any other actor. He was completely loyal to me. It was wonderful, but that was a that was a fun performance, and we did it in London too. Made the movie, pretty good movie. It's all right. Yeah, you made the movie. You did it in London. You did it in New York, and it proved you could really do comedy. And that was what I that's what I wanted you to do when we worked together in our, our little play called It's My Party. That was fun. Interestingly enough, I was in pretty good shape for that play. Uh, but uh, he was very uh, flamboyantly gay, very out. Women would come back to meet me. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? You yeah. think they tried to hurt him or something? I never figured that out. No. I, well, maybe... Him than they did for uh, for Cyrano, for example. Well, maybe the plan in the Ritz was to change you, to get you to you were on the wrong team. They wanted to get you on the other team. I'll give it a try. <laughs> no, not really, not really. <laughs> no. Anyhow, thank you, Mar. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it very much. Can I say one last thing, please? Uh, oh, you kidding? That's all we have is time. So I was there in London, and I went backstage to say hello to Mike Nichols, who was doing a play called The uh, uh, Mourner, uh, de- Designated Mourner. Mourner, 
And while I was there, we started to look for a place to have dinner. And then we drove around a taxi and dropped us off at Joe Allen. And sure enough, that's coincidentally, we ran into Mike again. He said, join us. But you had to leave early for whatever reason. And you, uh, before you left, you said, I'm going to produce a play for you. And then you said, but I'm not just saying it. I'm going to do it. And you did. But he left. And Mike Nichols said this. There goes the nicest producer in show business. Oh, I've never well, forgotten. He's full of crap. <laughs> <laughs> He'll say anything, that guy. <laughs> Thank wait, you for this, my friend. Thank, Thank you. Oh, wait, I'm so glad that I lost my virginity on a podcast with you. <laughs> Thanks for joining us on Julian Schlossberg's Movie Talk. Remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Produced by Audavita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.